0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through Uh, 26. uh, It's printed wrongly for you in your bulletin. And so we have provided a handout for you. You can look at that. That one starts at verse 15, but we're actually going to start in verse 16. And then uh, there's also uh, a Bible that is in most of your rows and you can turn to page 975 there. Uh, Or if you brought your own Bible, you can look at that. If you have a cell phone, a smartphone, and you've got a Bible on that, you can use that. There's lots of ways to do it. So we're going to look together uh, this morning at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be at the Knoxville Zoo looking at the new baby pandas that have been born, and they're just cute. You can just look at them and stare at them and want to take one home and pet it and hug it and love it. And then leave it at the zoo. And then uh, you could, uh, or you could be at the Tennessee Valley Fair, or you could be at IAMS doing yoga on a paddleboard, but you're not doing any of those things. Uh, You're here with us this morning. We're really glad to have you with us. And so I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he has entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week we gather together as his people to worship him and learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in that love, we then become a people who delight together uh, to gather together in community. And so we go to football games together, we go parasailing together, we read the Bible together, we pray together, all to remind each other of the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in that love that he has for us, as we remind one another of the love that he has for us, we delight like to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in urban and University Knoxville. And our hope is that somehow it will spread out through the entire world. That's who we are, a people trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest. As we remind and as we reflect. And so, to help us do that this fall, what we're going to do is we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason I want to study the fruit of the Spirit is because this, oftentimes here at Redeemer, when we talk about reflecting the love of Jesus, many of us start to think about all the things that we have to do. And we put a list of things that we have to do to go and reflect Jesus. And we get exhausted by that. We get tired by that. And even though the things that we do reflect the love of Jesus, we've got to ask ourselves the question, like, who are we becoming And how are we doing these things? What is Jesus forming in our life? Because who we are becoming is also reflecting Christ and what he is doing in us. And so we've got to evaluate our lives. And we've got to begin asking the question, is God filling us up with more and more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Because it's not enough for us just to be doing a lot of things. It also matters who we're becoming and how we do those things. And so this week, as we begin to think about the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to consider the seeds of desire, right? The seeds of desire. So with that in mind, look with me, please, at Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 16 and go down to verse 25 or verse 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this His word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are not hidden, nor are you silent, but you are a God who delights to make yourself known. You delight to draw near to us so that we would know you, that we would know your love, that we would know your patience, that we'd know your kindness, that we'd know your joy. Father, we pray that over these next few moments, as we attend to your word, that your spirit would attend unto us and you would show us lovely things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, my wife Jennifer and I decided that we wanted to plant a garden in our backyard and we've never done that before. So I looked up how to do it on the WWWs and we watched this YouTube video. And then we went to this feed and seed store out in Strawberry Plains and we filled up the minivan with like bales of hay and fertilizer and dirt. We bought these little packets of seeds. Then when we went home, we began to build these beds and then we built the beds. We filled it up with fertilizer and dirt and we surrounded those beds with bales of hay. And, uh, and then I pulled out these envelopes of seeds, and I pulled out the tiny little seeds, and then I put the little tiny baby seeds into the soil. And over the next few months, those little baby seeds kind of began to spring up, and there were these little baby sprouts, and then those baby sprouts became baby plants, and then baby plants, which eventually had these flowers on them, and those flowers then eventually bore fruit. And what I find amazing about gardens is that these tiny little seeds have so much potential that a tiny little seed can produce crazy amounts of fruit. Like we had these little okra seeds that we put in the ground and a little bitty okra seed produced a six, seven, eight foot tall plant. Just from a little bitty seed. Or you think about a little tomato seed and think about the hundreds of tomatoes that come off of a tomato plant. We had these little tiny thin little cucumber seeds that we put in the ground. And on those little vines, right, you have 15, 20 like foot long, two foot long cucumbers that come off of those things. And it's fascinating, right, to see fruit, like masses of amounts of fruit come out of these tiny little seeds that get buried in the ground. But it's not just uh, fascinating, it's also exciting. Because when you plant a garden, like every morning when you wake up, you run outside and you look at the garden to see if those little seeds have become sprouts. And if those sprouts have come up out of the dirt and uh, you're waiting for those sprouts to become plants and those uh, plants to flower and those flowers to become fruit. And then for you to be able to harvest the fruit and begin, I don't know, to eat tomatoes uh, and peppers. Uh, But anyway, uh, in our passage, one of the fascinating things is it seems to me that God is telling us that we are a garden. And out of the seeds that are in our heart, we bear fruit. See this in verse 16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. And so do you hear what he's talking about? Do you hear these seeds, the seeds, the desires of the flesh, and the seeds, the desires of the Spirit? And Paul's saying, we live out of those desires, I would assume that many of you have seen the classic film Napoleon Dynamite uh, when uh, Uncle Rico is walking around and he's selling his new pont fiber bowls and he's going from house to house and he's sitting across the the dinner table with couples and he's sitting across from this couple and he's trying to sell the twenty-four piece set and he's got this box on the table, and so he sticks his hand in the box and he pulls out this Beautiful little toy wooden sailboat and he puts it on the table and he looks at it and the wife looks at the toy boat and then the wife looks at the husband and she says, I want that right? Like, I want that. And that's kind of how we go about life. Like, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that, right? And out of those desires, we begin to live, and out of those desires, we bear fruit. And I want you to notice how this works. In verse 16 and 17, Paul talks about the desires of the flesh, which give rise, verse 18, to the works of the flesh. And then the desires of the Spirit, verse 16 and 17, give rise to verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. And so what I want us to think about this morning are these seeds of desire, right? The seeds of desire, that's the point, right? And so let's begin with the desire of the flesh. You know, often when we read this passage and we think about the desires of the flesh, we immediately begin to think about our bodies, and so we think about sexual immorality, we think about our lusts, we think about our perversions, and that is, what, uh, that is included in what Paul is talking about. But for Paul, the desires of the flesh is shorthand for the fallen sinful human condition. It is that life that is turning away from the creator and being bent in on itself and we see this in the fruit that is borne out. You see it in verse 19. There are these fruit that are bodily in nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies, drunkenness. Those surely have the body in view. But it also produces the fruit of uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, dissension, divisions, and envy. And what he's showing us is that the desires of the flesh right, are the matters of the heart, Just as Jesus has told us, right, out of the overflow of our hearts, we live. And it seems to me that the default human setting of the human heart is that we would walk in our own ways. And we would walk out of our own desires. And we would live for ourselves and about ourselves and from ourselves and to ourselves. And so if we could boil down what are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are you. The desires of the flesh are you. And we could talk for a long time about our cultural landscape and its desires, but I think it would be more beneficial for us to think about the desires of the flesh as they take on religious dimensions. Because as the desire of the flesh takes on a religious dimension, it bears the ugly fruit. It bears this ugly fruit that is seemingly religious, but is incredibly ugly. And the Galatians are a perfect example of this because they were this young, excited church. And so preachers would come to town and they would visit. And when they visited the Galatian church, they thought they were a little out of control. They thought they were a little free. They didn't think that they were really spiritual enough. And so these preachers began to tell the Galatians, look, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be committed, then you need to return to Moses and you need to return to all the old ceremonial traditions and laws. And so the people in Galatia, they did that. And for a time, the people felt really good about themselves. They felt really committed and they were working really hard and they were very serious. But slowly, what began to happen in Galatia was there was this spirit of competition that rose up in the church. And so those that were showing up for the 5 a.m. Bible study and for the 4.30 a.m. prayer meeting, they began to notice those who weren't showing up And they began to look down on those who weren't doing all the same things that they were doing. And so theologians like John Sanderson say that the more spiritual among them began to meet together in private in order to encourage one another in greater attempts at holiness and to separate themselves. And they began to pity those whose efforts were at best lukewarm. And then they began to develop checklists to gauge their performance and their progress. And the more check marks they earned, the more they desired And you can imagine sort of living in a community like that, and you can imagine the competition that begins to arise between people, and you can imagine the heated debate that would come as people began to try to figure out, well, what does it really mean to be spiritual? And are you spiritual? Are you spiritual? Are you spiritual? And then who has the authority to determine who is spiritual? And who has the authority to determine what is spiritual? And so what happens is that in their zeal to be spiritual, they had created a community Community that was filled with verse 26 conceit, provocation, and envy. And what had happened in the Galatian church is that they had turned a good thing, something like the law of God, in on themselves. And they were using the law of God to lift themselves up and to boast in themselves and to prove to the world that they were righteous and they were spiritual and they were serious. And this became destructive. Because within the community, you have these groups of people that are beginning to yell back and forth at one another. And one group is saying, Keep the law. And if you can't keep our rules, then you're not one of us. And you're not really serious about Jesus. And then there was this other group that was saying, Oh, yeah, but God loves us as we are, and we can do what we want. And your traditions aren't really Christian. We are free. And so you have these groups within the church that are swinging back and forth between legalism and licentiousness, between those who were keeping the laws and those who are rejecting the laws. But here's the problem. Both of them were defining their spirituality in reference to the law. They were defining their Christianity by what they did or by what they did not do. And do you see how this is rooted in the desires of the flesh? Because it is rooted all in what they do or what they can do. It is all rooted in their own efforts. And so what they're doing is they're taking this good thing, the law of God, and they're bending it in on themselves. And neither of their responses are Christian. Because the Christian does not live out of reference to the law We live in reference to Jesus and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And so here's the great irony is that the more the Galatians gave themselves to the law, the more they started to pervert it. The more they began to use the law to separate themselves from other people and to separate themselves from from one another and to make a name for themselves over and against the others that were in their community. And this led to this ugly fruit within the community that is spoken of in verse 20 enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing to them here in this book and he's saying, you've missed the point. Verse 18, you are not under the law, but you are led by the Spirit. And so, what Paul is saying here, he's not saying that the law is unimportant or insignificant. He is just saying that it is not your orienting principle. He is saying that the law has no power to actually change you. Because as human beings, we will pervert anything, we pervert sex and drugs and rock and roll and we pervert education and sports and our family and our children and we pervert our jobs and we will pervert the law of God and our religion. We will use all of those things to compare ourselves over and against other people and we will use all of those things to beat one another up. And the law can only condemn you, it will never change you. But the spirit of God does. The Spirit of God delights to change his people. You see, the Christian life is not a life of law. The Christian life is actually a spiritual life. And by spiritual, the Bible actually means the Holy Spirit. It means the third person of the Trinity. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, don't look inside your own spirit. Don't look inside yourself and live. What he is saying is look out to God And live in light of him. And so here's the deal. If you are led by the desires of the spirit, a new conflict will arise in your life. Notice again, verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And what Paul is saying to us is that there is this new fight within the heart of every Christian. Because the desire of the flesh is fighting against God for you. And the desire of the spirit is fighting for you against the desires of the flesh. And because there is this war that is going on, there is no neutrality. I've been reading a book the last couple of weeks called In the Garden of the Beasts. And it's about the rise of Nazi Germany uh, during the 30s. And during that time, uh, there were a lot of nations that wanted to remain neutral Right? They didn't want to get drawn into this war that was going on. But as World War II began to progress, it became almost impossible for a country to remain neutral. And so countries were being forced to declare their allegiance. But as soon as a country declared its allegiance, as soon as it was made known, there was a new battlefront that was formed. And so if you chose right, to be an ally with Germany, it meant that you began to fight with Germany against the allies. And if you chose to fight against Germany, then they would come after you. Right, There was no neutrality because there was a war going on. There was a fight against God and there was a fight against the desires. And that's what Paul is saying. You are either fighting against God or you're fighting against your sinful desires, but you cannot remain neutral. And here's the gift of God. That he gives you his Holy Spirit to fight on your behalf. God gives you his Holy Spirit to fight on your behalf. You see this in verse 18, you're led by the Spirit. You see it in verse 25, we live by the Spirit. And what Paul is saying is that without the Spirit of God, right, uh, you will never fight against your sinful desires. But with the Spirit of God, he will begin to fight against your sinful desires. And here's the deal. Unspiritual men and women don't care about the desires of the spirit, There's this tension, there's this conflict. And at times that tension and that conflict and that battle seem disheartening. But it ought to actually encourage you because what this tension and what this battle are telling you is that the spirit of God is at work within you. And this tension, this war is in every heart of every Christian because the spirit of God has gone to war against the desires of the flesh, I would assume that some of you have probably uh, read this popular new book that's out. It's called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and uh, you might remember that Harry used to sneak out at night. And one night, as he's sneaking around, um, you know, the school, hogs, hog, Hogwarts uh, or whatever, as he's walking around uh, through the night, he comes across this, this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. And you probably know that erised, spelled backwards, is desire, as it would be in a mirror. And the magic of this mirror is that it shows you receiving your heart's desire. And so when Harry would look in the mirror, right, he would see himself being embraced and being loved and being with his family. When Ron would see himself in the mirror, he'd see himself as the head boy lifting up the Quidditch cup. And as they're sitting there, you might remember that Dumbledore warns them about the dangers of just sitting there staring at their desires. And Dumbledore says this, Men have wasted away before it, not knowing if what they have seen is real or even possible. And what Dumbledore was saying is that people waste away as they are consumed by their desires, right? And we see this in our addictions as our brains and our bodies crave the desire of the addiction above everything else. And we waste away from life and we waste away from the joy of it. Or you see it as we pursue the desire for power, right? As we run after it and we fight for it and we seek to exert it. And as we dehumanize other people, we begin to dehumanize ourselves, Or we even see it in the pursuit of good desires, like a desire for family. Or it consumes people, it isolates people, and it shames people right? Because what we begin to do is we begin to fight and cut corners for our children so that our children can get ahead. And we begin competing against other parents. And we look down on other parents who don't do it as well as we think we do it. And then we measure our children's success against the success of other children. And then we destroy our own children. And then rather than becoming a welcoming family, we begin to close ourselves off to singles and we close ourselves to other friendships because we have our own family. And that's what we live for. And so rather than becoming hospitable, we become insulated, isolated places that excuse ourselves from having to avoid loving our neighbor. Now, I'm not saying your family doesn't matter. Your family totally matters because everything matters to God. But the emphasis of the Bible is not your family. The emphasis of the Bible is that we are the family of God. That we are the children of God who've been invited into his family. And he then invites us to come and draw near to him. And then he invites us to welcome others in then to come and to enjoy our heavenly father. And here's the deal. If we are left to our own individual desires, we will become like Smeagol in Lord of the Rings, right? You remember Smeagol, he's the store hobbit of the river folk who live near the gladen fields and who, when he is given over uh, to his desire for the great ring, he becomes more and more isolated. He becomes one who lives more and more in the darkness and he begins to lose more and more of his hobbitness. And eventually, as you know, Smeagol becomes Gollum. And he becomes stretched, thin, and gaunt. And he looks, as Tolkien says, like a starved frog. Uh, But it is really important to remember that Gollum wasn't always Gollum. He'd been a cute little Smeagol. He'd been a cute little hobbit. uh, But due to years of giving himself to his desires, he had slowly become something that was awful. And here's the point. Seeds bear fruit over time. Seeds bear fruit over time. It is not immediate. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, like the warming of a room or the coming of daylight, when you first notice them, they have already been going on for some time. They've already been going on for some time. And the battle is going on and it is tough and it is long and at times it's disappointing, but it is important It is important to continue fighting even in the little things because those little things begin to pave way for greater, bigger things. And just think again about a seed, a little bitty seed that bears much fruit. And that little seed, which put in the ground, begins to sprout, and then a plant, and then a tree, and then flowers, and then fruit. And then that fruit produces seeds, which become sprouts, which become plants, and new trees, and new flowers, and new fruit. And the gift of God is that his Holy Spirit plants his seed deep into our hearts and he does this in order to reconcile us to himself and to restore us to our humanity, to restore the image of God within us. And that is the desire of the Spirit. It is the fruit, it is the seed of the Spirit, it is the seed of God growing in our hearts in order to bear his beautiful fruit over time. But how does this happen? What happens, as verse 18 says, is we are led by the Spirit. And so many of you may be asking, okay, what do I need to do to be led by the Spirit? What do I got to do now? What do I need to do? And as I was studying this text this week, I started thinking, okay, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? And I thought, okay, I guess I need to look at verse 22 and I just got to do more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And then I got overwhelmed and I got frustrated, not because those aren't good things and not because those aren't things that I desire to be more true of me. I got frustrated because I realized that I can't make myself more love. I can't make myself more patience. I can't make myself... uh, more joy right these are gifts that we must receive from God they are the fruit of his spirit they are the fruit of God working within us and so maybe a better question to ask is this if the spirit is leading us and if verse 25 were to keep in step with the spirit then where is he leading us where is he leading us The Spirit is leading us to Jesus. The Spirit wants you to know Him. The Spirit wants you to see Him. The Spirit's job is to show you and to show me the love of Christ, to show his love for us, to show his goodness towards us, to show his joy over us, to show the peace that he offers us through his death and his resurrection. He wants to show us the patience that God has for us, the kindness he has towards us, the goodness that is him, the self-control that is him. And what the Spirit is doing is uniting us to the life of Jesus and showing us Christ in order that we might be a people who begin to desire him more and more and more, right? The Spirit's work is to create this deep longing in us for Jesus, such that if we were to look into the mirror of Erised, what would we see? We would see him. We would see his love. We would see his patience. We would see his kindness. We would see his joy. And we would see him welcoming us and embracing us and loving us. Right, The Spirit's work is to work faith in us so that we would see Jesus. John Sanderson says it this way. The Spirit works faith in us, which is a kind of sight producing within us adoration, which in turn become, becomes love, which begets the fruit of his life. And so at the end of the day, here's the deal. We will become what we love. One of my favorite movies, it's a little dated now, it's called Inception. It's a Christopher Nolan joint. And if you've seen it, it's this great movie, and the premise of this movie is that they're engaging people at the level of their dreams. And so uh, what's happening is people are breaking into other people's dreams, and they're selling what, they're fi- what they find to corporations so that those corporations can then monetize the longings of people's hearts. It's sort of like Amazon and Facebook. Uh, as they, you know, they collect our data and see what we love and then sell it to companies so that they can manipulate our desires, and then we'll buy what they want us to buy. But that's another sermon. Uh, another cultural critique but anyway uh, but in the movie right the main character Leonardo DiCaprio isn't so much consumed by the collection of desires and dreams right which would be excision what he's consumed by is inception what he wants to be able to do is he wants to go deeper and deeper and deeper into people's hearts and into people's dreams not to steal them but to implant a new desire but to implant a new love out of which they would then live. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing in the life of the Christian. The Spirit of God is performing an inception in which he is planting the love of Jesus deep into our hearts in such a way that it will grow and it will grow and it will grow and it will bear much fruit. It will bear the fruit of Jesus' life in the life of his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work your love deep into our lives, that you would cultivate our hearts and our souls and our desires towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.